Welcome to the Autonomy Podcast, a podcast about work, post-work, and everything in between. In these episodes, we explore the politics of work, new innovative labor policies, as well as newly emerging forms of production. We want to envisage what the future of work might be, and also what the future of work should be in our societies. You can follow Autonomy's research online at autonomy.work or find us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date. I'm Will Strong, one of the directors at Autonomy, and I'm very excited to have my two guests here today to discuss our topic, the future of trade unions. Alice Martin is the head of work and pay at the New Economics Foundation and is co-writing a book on the future of trade unions. She is also a member of Autonomy's advisory board. Welcome, Alice. Hi. Alice is joined by Lydia, who's an editor of the journal Notes from Below, and who's also a trade union organiser. Lydia, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Okay, so I think let's start this discussion, let's start this conversation about the future of unions with a basic question, which I'm going to direct to Alice, um, seeing as you're writing a book on the topic. What is a union and why are they important? So I suppose just to break it down to basics, which I actually found quite hard to do, which is Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) problematic maybe if I'm writing a book. Uh, But I think they're a collective of workers uh, who who want to collectivise their interests that would often be distinct from the interests of their employers. So they've changed throughout history. There's different forms of unions in different countries. There's different forms of unions active today in in Britain. Mm -hmm. So there's really no kind of one model of of trade unions. Um, I'd say in answer to the question of why they're important, um, I like to think of them a bit like agents of democracy Mm. um, in the sense that we spend almost well, the vast majority of our waking lives in work. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't really have much say over the terms and conditions once we're there. Mm. On the whole, that's determined by employers. Uh, so a union is there really to give you the opportunity to have a kind of collective say over the terms of your employment. I think it, that their function goes beyond work as well into kind of how the economy functions, how mm. society functions more broadly. And historically, they've won you know, huge things that, that we kind of base our lives around today, whether uh, holidays, mm-hmm. the weekend, uh, parental rights. Um, and I think that's often taken for granted, but also often it's it's used as something that, that puts them in a kind of historical box mm. because we kind of look back at what they've won in the past. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like that's a good point, actually. I suppose that, you know, I keep thinking of that Elizabeth Anderson book from a couple of years ago, Private Government, which is that, you know, when, if we lived in a state or, or a society where we literally had no say over our, or our conditions where we lived, we could be exiled, we could, without really much reason, we could, no one, we can't elect our leaders, we'd be outraged, right? But I guess what she's talking about in terms of the company being a private government is that that's exactly the conditions of most people's workplaces where we don't have control over something which we, you know, exist within, you know, for, as you say, most of our lives. So I think that's a good way of putting it as a kind of like just a basic force for democracy within your everyday life I think that's, that's a really that's a really succinct way of putting it that's what we should we should say in your book <laughs> maybe I'll steal it from myself <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah no um so I suppose I guess uh, as you say like often we we treat trade unionism or we talk about the merits of trade unionism as a historical um kind of phenomenon where actually you know there's probably a good reason for that right and I guess maybe we could talk a little bit about the trajectory of unionism or trade unionism in the UK um and I guess I want to talk a, a little bit about and kind of get some kind of idea of what, what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years, because I suppose, and I'm going to make an assumption here, it seems like trade unions have been in decline. What's happened? So 
Economies have transformed significantly over the last sort of 30 or 40 years. And the UK is a prime example of how neoliberalism cut fast and deep and kind of transformed the way we work. It transformed the way companies operate in the economy. There were, there were lots of kind of direct legislative changes that, that actually attacked unions and, and the practices of unions. For example, anti-strike laws that, that made it much harder for uh, people to take industrial action, to, to go on strike. Um, and other kind of, I suppose, chipping away at the legislation that had been built up over 100 years that, that unions had kind of achieved that gave workers some immunity from the law if they were taking collective action at work. Um, so a lot of this kind of came under direct attack under the, the Thatcher government um, and similar things have happened internationally as well. Uh, but there were also <clears throat> lots of indirect ways that mm. those changes have affect unions and, and have seen unions decline. And, and, and you're right in saying they, they have declined. I think sometimes a bit too much emphasis is put on the fact that membership has declined significantly and, and collective bargaining reach has declined, which is, that just refers to the number of people who are covered in collective pay agreements, mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. at the level of their workplace or their sector. So that, that's declined from being around 80% of the population in, in the late 70s. So uh, like four in five people had their pay determined by some sort of collective agreement or action at that point and now it's that's if you're if you're a trade union member or not basically regardless of whether yeah. you're a member so if you're like within a certain sector and there was a trade union fighting for you but you didn't even necessarily know about it you'd you'd still benefit from there being a trade union fighting your corner yes yeah so there were co collective agreements that that covered whole industries or covered groups of, of different firms um today it's it's uh less than a quarter of people who are covered by by those kinds of agreements and and there's similar levels of of union membership so one in four of the working population are in unions. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think, though there has been a dramatic decline, I think it's still really significant that one in four people are, are members of these sort of vast democratic organisations, membership organisations. And there are also other measures that you can look at, um, such as strike action or militancy, uh, which has, ha has declined as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But in other countries, you do see different kind of formations of, of unions that, that actually have very low membership, but high levels of kind of activism and militancy. So in France, they're only 8% of the population are in unions, um, but historically kind of labor movement and, and unions have been able to defend quite kind of progressive uh, labor laws, mm -hmm. which are now under attack and, and uh, under a Macron government, there's, there's been quite a lot of success. Um, but in terms of the, the decline, here in those kind of indirect things, um, I think the change that the changes to the way we work is, is probably a really significant one. So, um, and I think Lydia might want to talk a bit about this as well, but outsourcing is kind of a, a key example of how uh, privatization has changed the composition of, of kind of whole industries. So now you might be a, a kind of... A, you might have a role in a university, but be represented by a different union to the other people in that university. So academics, mm. librarians, cleaners might be represented by completely different unions. And those cleaners might actually have a completely different employer. It might mm. be InterServe, who uh, employs thousands of people across the country in thousands of different workplaces. So forming any sort of critical mass when you work for a kind of huge employer that has its hands in all sorts of different workplaces mm -hmm. is very difficult. So mm -hmm. I think unions have really struggled to 
uh, make serious inroads into some of these new privatised sectors. What drove that? What was, why did that happen in terms of what was the strategy? I mean, I feel like these, is, I guess we don't want to keep thinking about these things as kind of quasi-inevitable um, kind of phenomena in a way. Like what was, why were unions, um, why were these certain capacities uh, reduced or neutered? Uh, because I think the the kind of business models that that have emerged over the past few decades rely on highly kind of flexible, mobile, malleable workforces mm-hmm. who can kind of come and go as and when demand is there. Mm-hmm. And unions are a complete thorn in the side of that model because if you're unionized, you you tend to have better rights. You have the ability to kind of take action and, and push back if if uh, your employer is suggesting something that isn't in line with those rights. Um, so the, there's a kind of model of, of liberalising just labour market rules generally that has allowed things like agency work, um, sham self-employment, as is kind of talked about lots in terms of the, the gig economy, mm. um, and casualised work generally are, are just are forms that, that this, this kind of new economic model rely on um, and unions get in the way of it i mean there were there was kind of specific and direct attacks made by the government um when thatcher got in and most people will know about them uh, where certain industries were targeted either through privatization or through uh kind of concerted closures um so coal mines being probably the most famous one but what kind of happened as a result of those privatizations is the sectors where there were high levels of unionization Many of them moved into private hands, so uh, rail, utilities, post. And then we've also seen a proliferation of private companies in those sectors as well, where unions aren't present. So the kind of whole, whole privatisation agenda relied on, on having this much more mobile workforce um, who had less, less rights. Right. Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess this is perhaps a complex question, and it's not really about direct causes. But, you know, I guess when we're thinking about trade unionism, we're also thinking about the world of work, as you've quite, you know, rightly pointed out, that actually the business models were changing, work itself was changing. Um, but also that means working life was changing and working conditions and um, the conditions of people's lives are changing. I wonder if you could maybe map out what was what were the effects in everyday life of trade union decline, let's say, over the last 30, 40 years? And we're living with still today, perhaps. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question because it's not just about... Um, your 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 life in the office, but I mean, I think the the agenda you've pointed to of privatization, etc., and the, the breaking of worker power, worker democracy, has has you know come with you know different welfare policies. It's come with um, a kind of a polarization and things like this of society. I wonder if like you speak to that kind of mm-hmm. correlation. Why why are they linked? So, I suppose as the fallback options that you have as a as a worker in society decrease. So if you have um, less opportunities for work if the pay is lower if you have um less opportunity to to receive welfare then you're you're kind of less likely and at least in economic broad speaking broadly speaking economic terms you're less likely to push back against your employer so the fact that uh unions aren't so present now in people's lives means that there isn't really uh that that collective body through which you can uh, feel strong enough, I suppose, to oppose some of the the, the changes that might be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say increasingly, uh, particularly among younger generations today, the fact that 
the kind of cost of living, particularly in relation to housing, has soared so much, um, and so many people, so many more people now are renting. Um, I think there's a kind of there's been a shift potentially in people's mindset away from thinking of work as the main site of of your exploitation. I would say that probably most people do still experience that at work, but for a lot of people, um, landlordism and feeling really disempowered in the housing market is is something that uh that's quite prominent now and that the kind of yeah i think well maybe we'll talk about this later but the emergence of other types of unions or 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 other conversations in unions about um areas to organize for example around rents i think um are becoming a bit more a bit more present today for that reason so yeah i think people's kind of working lives have changed their their reliance on expensive housing on debt uh, have changed and maybe the the kind of old union model that they have in their head doesn't quite fit with that. It doesn't quite fit with how they feel they're experienced, experiencing their oppressions today. Mm-hmm. Where, like where's the sharp end of their life? Lydia, do you want to come in? Yeah, I think that's totally right. And like we're seeing a total crisis with young people joining unions at the moment. I think it's like around 4% of the whole population who are in unions are young workers between 18 and 23, wow. I think it is. It's totally dismal. I think a big part of the problem is that young people don't know what unions are or they don't see them as being relevant to them at all. We've just started a really new exciting challenge at the IWGB of organising game workers. And mm. these are very young workers mm. um, and it's bringing a whole different kind of dynamic to our trade unionism. I went to one of the first meetings with them and yeah, oh, I gave them the pitch, you know, IWGB's great, we do this, we go on strike, so-and-so. And after a while, one of the workers just put her hand up and was like, sorry, can I stop you there? I was like, oh God, have I said something? She was like, "Uh, what is a trade union? Mm -hmm. I was like, of course, like, of course, like we're not having these conversations with people at a young age anymore. Mm. Um, And there's no like history of trade unionism that they relate to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They just simply don't know it's an option or don't know it's something that they could engage in with themselves. Yes, I wonder if like, I mean, I guess, I suppose a lot of trade unionism will be, you know, it's been in the family as well. Like you can learn it through generations. Like my, you know, my dad was in a union. He, you know, my granddad or, or, or you know, my mom. It's like, and I suppose if there's like, if there has been generations where there's been a serious decline, there's been even a, a cultural kind of battle as well waged against these unions, particularly, you know, in these moments that Alice was um, alluding to with the miners, for example, then maybe there is like a split where actually to find out about un- a trade union is actually quite hard um, in terms of like what's what's good, for, what you know, what, what's good about it. You know, the people who I see as trade unionists, they don't seem to be like kind of like me or whatever. I guess in the game workers union, that's a particular um, demographic or composition of, of that kind of worker, which is different to, you know, maybe like different to the kind of unions that might, that might have been a, like, might be in their general mindset or, something, or, or who knows. I think there's a definite generation gap, just as you said, of like people in our generation. Maybe they didn't speak to their parents about unions. That's not always the case. But I feel like there's a real gap in terms of generations there. Um, mm. And it seems like a negative thing in so many ways. But often what we're seeing with the game workers is it's actually flipped around. It can be a really positive thing. We've just heard about the depressing history of trade unions in this country, trade union decline huge defeats I mean that's not the whole history as well there's huge successes but that um almost goes missing when we have this generation gap and now what we see is a whole new generation of workers who are just coming to trade unionism from the beginning and they're shaping a dynamic trade union movement 
that doesn't even look back to this history of failure. Instead, it just sees going forward and forming a union movement that, that works in their sector. It's exciting. It's an exciting opportunity. I mean, I'm ever the optimist, but... <laughs> no, that is exciting. I think I wonder, like, yeah, let's, let's, let's start there. Like, what is this newly emerging aspect of the union movement, the trade union movement? What are the, you know, there's, there's a few unions that have kind of emerged very recently. You know, you mentioned IWGB, we can talk about Kaiwu, um, UVW as well. Um, why are they different? What kind of terrain are they fighting these battles, mm-hmm. these, these like long-standing traditional battles in the workplace against perhaps the interests of their employers? What's different about these battles and what's different about these kinds of workers perhaps? So we're seeing a new union movement emerging, I would say. It's a movement of young unions, it's a movement of small unions um, and they're seen generally as different. Different, dynamic, can be set apart from this so-called traditional trade union movement. Mostly they were set up in around like 2012. Um, and the interesting thing about them is they've come out of the big trade union movement. There's a definite link and a lineage there of workers who are low wage, they're precarious, often they're migrants, um, they work in some kind of outsourced sector. And they were within this big union movement, but found some of them faced racism, some of them, the union just didn't even speak their language, um, or they faced issues in workplaces where. Um, agreements were being protected often at the expense of of the most precarious in that workplace so it's an exciting moment where we're seeing uh, these workers forming their own unions and setting them up as the kind of fighting unions that they would want in their own workplace so I think we can see it as a, a microcosm of like what we can make the future trade union movement look like is there like a commonality amongst the kinds of work we're talking about I mean I guess like obviously trade unions if will be will be relating to the workplace and I guess the workplace has changed uh, mm-hmm. or at least in sorry not everywhere but like certain sectors of workplace has changed the kind of work people are doing has changed and the tactics of employers perhaps has changed as well mm-hmm. so is there a commonality there or actually is it that these new unions are just a bit more um, kind of um, fiery is there something about the kind of work definitely I think we can see a real theme of commonality across these unions in terms of the workers they may seem like they're from different sectors but one thing they all have in common is outsourcing, which you mentioned, Alice, as well. Um, whether it's the kind of traditional form of outsourcing that we would normally think of, like, uh, for example, we have lots of members at UCL who are going on strike next week. Uh, they work for Sodexo or another outsourcing company, but they clean UCL buildings, they interact with other UCL members of staff, that kind of traditional form of outsourcing. But then also within our union, within IWGB, we have Uber drivers, Deliveroo riders, um, other kinds of couriers, and they face a common uh, misclassification of their work. Mm. So I would see this as a different form of outsourcing. We're still outsourcing the responsibility, the funding, the everything onto the worker mm-hmm. um, and pushing them into more precarious positions. Right. So that's like, just to be clear on that, that's... That's a tactic so that it basically costs less to have the same kind of labor, right? Like Definitely. holiday pay, sick pay, um, maternity leave, things like that. It's, like, it's a way of basically saying, we will like hire you for that piece of work you're doing. It's literally mm-hmm. piece work, but we don't have to have all the other social benefits which we normally pay to other workers or which unions have won over time, right? Like having, Definitely. having yeah, holidays and, and even the weekend. I guess a lot of these workers will be working sometimes seven days a week just to make ends meet, right? Yeah, Definitely. And we can really see these forms of work as the real canary in the coal mine. Lots of people like very aptly point out that the number of people in, in the so-called gig economy is so small and it gets a lot of attention paid to it. 
But it is right. Like, it's so important. You see these workers being pushed into these forms of work that mm-hmm. are incredibly precarious. They're having no holiday pay, no sick pay. They are so-called independent contractors, although their arrangement looks anything but. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of a new form of work that's being tested out in the gig economy is even now encroaching into other forms of work. Um, and we're really seeing that being tested out in this um, so-called kind of new exciting tech sector mm-hmm. that's what they'd love us to think right yeah but it's yeah. same old exploitation sure 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 and i guess i mean this is a question for both of you as well like, as you alluded to new forms of union or at least unions touching on different areas now i remember like there was it's, it's an interesting idea of thinking about unions moving into you know helping out in neighborhoods helping out in the non-work non-traditional workplaces and um, maybe recognizing different forms of work which are unpaid that kind of function mm-hmm. i think it seems you know we're talking about we've talked about decline talked about new unions but actually maybe a way of maybe it's a way of revivalist to actually expand and show that actually what's tangibly good about having people organized yeah and and i think actually it's important to go maybe a bit further back in history some of the kind of early very early days of of unions when they did play more of that kind of community function where your union was there to kind of uh as a as a focal point for you to come together with other people in your area and and battle all sorts of um issues that you might have been facing and trades councils uh which if you haven't heard of trade unions you definitely won't have heard of trades councils <laughs> they do exist still today but they're basically local organizations of trade unions that are site specific so every kind of uh town or city or region will have one Southwark that the borough I live in in, in London has a tr- Southwark trains trades council and the idea of them is to pull together the different unions active in workplaces in those areas and actually try and uh, fight joint battles and joint campaigns. So rather than sort of dividing people up by the type of work that they're doing and the type of union that represents them, you're looking for kind of commonalities that that are are kind of site specific and and locally specific. And I think there's potential for a revival of of, of some of that thinking, particularly, as I mentioned earlier, around housing. Mm. Trades councils traditionally played an important role in linking up um, housing campaigns, rent strikes that that were going on in you know in the earlier part of the twentieth century with trade union activities, and I think that there could be something in that today um, that that could be worth reviving for sure. Who is? I've got two on top of my head. Who are the unions and what of of housing and what's been going on there? Because I know that there's London based and there's but I mean. Yeah. So there's a London's, London Renters Union is, is the kind of fastest growing renters union in, in the UK. Um, but there's also Acorn Community Union, which uh, isn't just about housing, uh, but they do organize quite a lot of organizing around housing and they're active in a number of cities uh, in the UK. And they are uh, specifically trying to build kind of a collective mass of of renters social and private renters and and i suppose anyone experiencing problems through housing um and and bring them together not necessarily with the idea of a rent strike per se in mind but uh things like uh blockading against evictions mm-hmm. and pushing back against uh you know high rents and things like that and i, I think there has been a coming together of, of the London Renters Union and an IWGB branch in, in London. Mm, yeah. um, and I, I suppose I see one of the, I don't think it's probably helpful to suggest trade unions should, should become renters unions as well and everyone should do everything. But I think one of the um, impl- important functions a union could play in supporting the proliferation of these other models is around things like uh, 
political education and kind of legal education and uh, I suppose drawing on some of the history of unions in actually having established themselves as as an institution and a force that that now plays a role in the economy how could that be shared with with other groups definitely I mean when I was at LSE actually we were organizing cleaners in another unit actually UVW I spoke to one of the striking cleaners and we just got chatting about where she lived and what was going on and it turns out she was on a one-woman rent strike as well. <laughs> and it really demonstrates that we can never see these issues in isolation. Um, and that further collaboration is so important. Mm. And mm. even though we may not see struggle happening really visibly, but it's always boiling there underneath the surface, especially with this kind of layer of precarious workers in London. I guess I was going to say, actually, when Alice was talking about high rents and seeing different the, the, the antagonism in your life, the problems in your life being perhaps in a slightly different, some people might be seeing it as a different place than the workplace. Actually, of course, perhaps one of the struggles is to make it out that this whole system is, they're all interlinked, right? Actually, mm. your low wages due to, often largely due to trade union decline or lack of worker voice has meant that it's harder to pay the rent. The rents are also going up for perhaps different reasons, but nonetheless, it puts a strain on that, on that relationship with the, the amount of cash you have to hand. So, you know, it kind of makes sense that someone's doing one woman strike and also fighting for, you know, that's the that's the pushback, I guess. Okay, um, I think seeing as this podcast is called the future of unions, I think it'd be good <laughs> to segue into thinking about the future and what unions will be doing, what they will be fighting for, and what they should be perhaps fighting for what issues you know in the decades ahead are unions going to be looking at or or you know from your personal you know personal perspective what should they be really really pushing now i'm going to i guess i'm going to i think this can be more speculative it could also be very concrete i think like there's i think some of the demands are going to be very like very traditional like we need high wages we've had a huge you know wage wage growth's been stagnant for over a decade etc but I want us to kind of like also think about larger issues, perhaps wider issues, which, which we've already touched on, but some we haven't. So I'll, I'll go to Lydia first. What do you think the future of trade unionism is and what it, should, what it should be? In terms of demands, in terms of goals, I see the most important thing that we're seeing at the moment is control over the workplace. It's so fundamental, but it's something that often gets ignored. Um, and we've seen this even back to the night cleaners who are organizing uh, in the 70s and 80s you know, they talked about oh, pay and conditions, but one of the big thing was having control over their workplace, uh, what they did, when they did it. Um, and we see that with all the workers we organize in IWGB, and especially with the, the new game workers and tech workers, um, they have their struggles over pay and conditions. But often it's about what their output is, what they're doing in the workplace, who tells them what to do. Um, so control is is really the fundamental of what we should be fighting for in the future trade union movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but also one of the things that I want to touch on is not just how, like what we should be fighting for, but I think how we're doing it, how we're mm -hmm. fighting for that. And that's one of the kind of clear distinctions we can see in the different trade union movements. Um, sometimes the demand comes secondary to what kind of activity we're engaging in and who we're engaging in that we could have the same kind of traditional partnership style union where we all sit around a table and strike a sweet deal with the boss and we get a little bit of a wage increase. Uh, or we can really start thinking about these like grassroots, bottom-up movements uh, where we're getting mass participation, we're getting mass industrial action. Mm. And um, 
yeah, I think it's truly empowering and amazing to see. And that's where our future trade union movement should lie, because that is the future and getting even more people involved, winning even better things. Um, it's not being cowardly. It's it's really putting ourselves out there and, and fighting to win. I suppose if you do manage to swell participation, it's, it's, it's less of a risk of thinking that senior members of the union are doing deals without you being able to be in the room and think and hearing what they're saying kind of thing. If there's mass participation and kind of um, in the demands, in, in act like kind of performing, embodying the demands, then I guess it's it, it feels more like democracy, right, than, 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 than a kind of backroom deal, as it were. Even if the deal is well-intentioned, it's also mm-hmm. you're not in that room. There are other people representing you. So it's kind of that kind of, that kind of element to it. Alice, what are your thoughts? I was just going to pick up actually on the um, partnership thing you mentioned. So this isn't, I'll, I'll come to my demands in a minute, but um, <laughs> I think I really agree with what Lydia said about, you know, when we're thinking of the methods and I think you drew attention to, uh, you know, this quite passive partnership approach of sort of just asking for a bit more and agreeing with your employer that, yeah, the the, the company can probably afford that. Okay, we'll do it. Um, that's actually problematic not just because it's not very empowering but it's problematic because it doesn't really do much to shift power in the economy today so if you achieved you know a bit uh, higher wages one year that isn't really going to dramatically shift anything uh, you know inequality or the real inequality that that underpins uh, decisions in your workplace and and the economy more broadly um so what i'm getting at there i suppose is that uh yeah, well, maybe I'll, I'll segue on to my demands. Um, I think the the question of ownership is starting to emerge within the or some sections of the union movement at the moment again. And there's there's a kind of uneasy history, um, or there, there there yeah, there could be an uneasy history told about the two traditions of kind of cooperative movements and and trade union movements through time. Um, sometimes those those kind of agendas have been seen to be in contradiction. But I think there are there are also really fantastic examples of of trade unions being involved in actually pushing for more worker control, as as Lydia said. And part of that control is about uh, ownership, is about kind of direct uh, control of 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 the assets of of, of a company. Mm-hmm. And I think there's renewed interest in that now, particularly from um, the CWU union, who are doing who represent postal workers um, and. The, postal sector is a really good example of how privatization has not just damaged people's working lives but actually sort of the fabric of communities generally so where people might have relied on their local post office as like a place that they would go and you know have various different services and and meet people in their area the closure of post offices has meant that that's 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 kind of dissipated so if unions could play a role in actually looking at ownership looking at, at kind of democratic forms of ownership and, and maintaining particular functions and services in the economy where the private sector just isn't interested in them i think that could actually be quite transformative today i guess that's an interesting point ownership and control i it's what sprung to mind for me was that actually fine you can create better working conditions you can determine how your work is organized and how your day working day is but also suppose and you know correct me if i'm wrong you can also start thinking you have some kind of say in the direction of the company as well and that would be more and more important when we're moving into you know, a century where we're going to have to deal with things like climate change. We're going to have to deal with, you know, um, more ethical questions around investment and like how we relate to the global south, etc. And these broader questions do, to some extent, come down to what companies are doing what and who, what the decisions are guiding those companies. Um, so, you know, if you have workers who have workers of a company having much more control over what the company does and says, then actually, not saying they will make the right decisions, but it means that actually 
there's it's not just come down to someone who might have just one motive mm-hmm. um or, or yeah yeah i mean it's a comp- it's a complex area in that, and there are models of this that are are really bad and there shouldn't be things that we're pushing for so i think sort of tokenistic share ownership in in companies that then sort of dilutes the role of a union i.e. you know you all sit on boards or you all participate a bit in these decisions therefore you don't you can't really have a union because uh, mm. your interests are already reflected at a kind of corporate level that's not the kind of thing i'm i'm talking about so much it's it's more i suppose looking at the, the role of, of, of unions as kind of collectivizing uh, the, the, the kind of voice and, and needs of, of people in work and looking at the kind of services that at the moment are, are being um, eroded in society and, and working out if unions can play a role in, in kind of reversing that. So they have historically played a role in pushing for the nationalization of, of sectors and, and had um, a lot of um, success with that in the post-war period. But those forms of nation- nationalisation weren't particularly democratic in and of themselves. So I think today there, mm. there could be a kind of revival of unions pushing for kind of forms of, of uh, non-private ownership that directly involve workers in the management. One issue which might come up there, I suppose, is, is when you do have a nationalised industry, who runs it? And how is that partnership between, to use that thorny word again, between the owners of that industry, let's say um, the state, which is uh, running it as a representative of of the public and the workers who work in that industry itself. Um, The the relationship might be different to the one where you have workers and private employers, um, but it might also not feel like that when you're working in that industry. So I guess the issue is, how has that played out in the past perhaps, or at least what what would a progressive version of that look like? I think a, a progressive version would basically focus on and rather than or. So just because you're working for a nationalised industry or company, it, it doesn't mean you're not a worker anymore. So you should always also have a union. Um, it doesn't matter whether your employer is, is public or, or private or it's a worker-owned cooperative. Unions can and should still exist in that place um, and will always yeah, th- there's always a function for them in as much as there will always be a group of workers who's who have decisions taken out of their hands by management and therefore they need to kind of form a collective position. So um, and a good example of that is, is kind of unionised cooperatives, which exists as, as, as lots of small ones. Um, internationally, Mondragon uh, is a huge one in the Basque Country, mm. which is a huge kind of uh, worker-owned co-op with around 70,000 people working there, but they are unionised. They have a, a collective agreement as well, so those workers still can... Uh, form collective positions and, and push for the kind of conditions that they want at work. Um, so I think if we were going to see a renationalisation of, of 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 any sectors, I think it would need to look quite different to the, the ones that maybe came um, in the post-war period in Britain, where there wasn't really much democratic accountability within them. Um, and I think it's important that unions wouldn't see that as the kind of end game job done. Mm. It's been nationalised. Now we can all just sit back. Actually. There's, there's always going to be a role for that kind of um, democratic participation in work. Definitely. And I've been seeing this really strange narrative going around recently. I don't know if you guys have heard similar things in the lead up to the election. People being like, oh, you know, well, if Labour get elected, you know, we, we don't even need to bother anymore. You know, we don't need this like militant trade union movement to be pushing forward the interests of workers because, hey, we'll have Jeremy in number 10 and mm-hmm. he'll be like signing off all our demands all the time. Um, and it's so important to remember, just as you said, that like fundamental antagonism 
and we are still workers in that situation mm-hmm. and we still need to be represented at the higher higher powers um and these are organizations that you know do try and cut costs they try different management techniques mm-hmm. and without that like powerful base of a union what's our power there you know only having jeremy in number 10 mm-hmm. it's quite a depressing sad state of mm-hmm. affairs where we feel like oh god we can go home now we don't mm-hmm. have to do this anymore mm-hmm. like we want to do this it's great mm-hmm. you know this is how we're going to like formulate our our new economy and it's through workers power workers control just to pick up on that as well there's a, there's a kind of fragility to anything that is is state backed anyway so aside from you know whether there is a particular leap forward in terms of workers' rights because a progressive government gets in and, and sort of establishes new institutional powers for unions. Um, so you mentioned um, Corbyn's Labour Party and, and one of their key demands is for sectoral collective bargaining, which would be to to kind of um, re-establish a role for unions in actually setting pay and wages at, at the level, uh, pay and conditions at the level of a sector. And that is... Um, for sure, that's a positive move. It would bring lots of people out of, of really awful conditions very quickly uh, without them having to join unions. However, if it didn't also result in more people joining unions and, and participating in, in that kind of democracy, it in itself, it's very, very fragile to uh, new governments coming in and just sort of sweeping it away again as, as previous um, conservative governments have. So I think... It's always important when, you, when you're thinking about what unions can build in, in terms of institutional forms or models of ownership or whatever it is, that they always need a kind of strong democratic membership base to, to defend them and, and to hold them to account. Um, and uh, yeah, I mentioned France earlier. It, we're kind of seeing in real time what, what can happen when your, your kind of membership base um, is small and, and you have a kind of powerful government pushing through changes and it's difficult to kind of mobilize people at, at the level of a workplace to, to defend those change, uh, to defend against those changes. Definitely. I think we need a powerful trade union movement now more than ever. If Corbyn doesn't get in, heaven forbid, um, then we're going to be needing a strong movement of workers to kind of push back on Tory government plans over work, but austerity in our communities as private renters. Um, and then if Corbyn does get in, you know, we need to be pushing from the base as well. We need to be like really forcefully uh, setting over our demands. Mm. Governments and parties come and go, but worker issues will remain. Yes. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, guys. I want to thank my guests, Alice and Lydia. Uh, you can listen to the Autonomy podcast. You can find all our episodes on SoundCloud and Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.